Hey, welcome to Element if you're new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And when you read the verse that's on the top of this today, just give me a chance to make it through the entire message before you know you want to run up here and tackle me. Uh, underneath that, there's a place for all the verses and a place to take notes. On the bottom, there's a place to ask questions if you want to turn in a question. On the back, there's a short recap of what we talk about. On the bottom, there's questions to talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about to go a little bit deeper into what we talk about today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. And if you open that, you'll click on more and then events, and then you'll come up by GPS in your smart device. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And again, I'm going to read this. We're going to pray, and then we'll talk about it. Don't just get all offended when I read it. Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Teach slaves to be subjects to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means as we read the scriptures to see the direction that you are leading us as a people. That really, more importantly than everything else, we would see in our lives how we have been slaves to sin, in bondage to that, and how you have set us free. And that we would love and follow you in all that we say and all that we do, that you would be glorified. And that as we walk through the things we do today, you would teach us to be those who honor and love you by how we live out our lives in this world, glorifying you and giving dignity and respect to people who are made in your image throughout the world. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So we are walking through Element's non-controversial trek through questions of people have about the Bible and passages. We're calling it Never Read a Bible Verse, not because we don't want you to read your Bible. It's that we want you to read your Bible in context. So when you read it, read it in context. When we first started this, I gave you two weeks in the beginning to kind of lay the foundation of what faith actually is, trusting in who God is. And then the week after that, we talked about a couple different things, that the Bible is a library, not a single book. It is 66 books coming together that the Bible is written for us, but it's not written directly to us because it's not written into our cultural context, but it is written for us. And this goes into the never read a Bible verse, which goes into everything in the scriptures ultimately points to Jesus. And having that groundwork, we started to walk into some things like Isaiah 55, where God says, my ways are not your ways. We talked about creation, and last week we talked about hell, and this week we're going to talk about slavery. Some weeks we have a concept, some weeks we look at particular verses. This is going to be verses and a context. And I got to say, as a white dude in 2022, starting off a sermon with the verse that I started with could get me beat up in a lot of places. So let me just... Up front, state the obvious, I am against slavery, in case you were wondering. I am against racism. I think that there is one race called the human race, and if we understood that, things would be a whole lot better. But one of the critiques that you see when people come along, they take verses out of context, is they say the Bible never calls for specifically the eradication of slavery. And you know what? 
They're right. They're right. But not overtly saying something does not mean it doesn't call for it to disappear. It just never uses those words. And this is an important subject for us to begin to talk about because in the history of the church, it is convoluted to say the least and people's reactions to it. So this has been probably one of the hardest messages for me to put together. I have gone back. I have changed things. I have added things. And I want you to know today I'm going to be a little more serious than normal. Not that I'm not serious. I'm always serious about the Bible. But I'm not going to crack as many jokes because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. I'm also going to look down a lot because I want to make sure I stay with my notes. The slide guy is going to be really happy because most weeks they're like, where did he go? I don't know. I'm going to stick with my notes as, as much as possible in this. So let me just read you a few verses. We will talk about these, but I want to read you a few verses. Maybe this will make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Exodus 21 verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, this also goes to some people's views of women, and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks as well, but you can't wait. Uh, Exodus 21, verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And you never see a verse that says, end all slavery immediately. And I don't know if you've ever seen debates on TV, or if you've been on a college campus, or even in high school, or between a couple friends where people pull out certain verses about slavery and say, see, the Bible is pro-slavery, look how terrible it is, we can't believe it. And this is why we want to talk about what the Bible actually states. We must understand the time and place that the Bible was written into. So in context of culture, I'm going to give you three points as we walk through this. And they're not even really points. They're more directions of where I'm going to talk about where we're going to go. And the first one is this, because I just want to be honest with you. The history of slavery and the church is difficult, to say the least. Now, when you understand the history of slavery and the church, people will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, uh, people in Africa, they, they had wars and they kidnapped their own people and sold them, which is true. But white slavers also went in and kidnapped people in Africa. Do you know that the, the first African slaves, when they kidnapped from Africa and they were deposited on the shores of Jamestown, it's about the same time the, that the pilgrims are landing at Plymouth Rock. Many in the white church of Jesus Christ abated and aided the enslavement in Africa, of Africans. By 1750, about 20% of the population of the colonies were African American. 20%. Do you know that number is actually 12% today? 20%. During that time, an Anglican bishop actually made an edict that said if a slave came to believe in Jesus as his savior and he was baptized, he was still not allowed to go free. From 1846 till the Civil War, every Southern Methodist Episcopal bishop was a slave owner. Every single one that we have records of. Everyone. And if you wondered why are there Southern Methodists, well, they split over the issue of slavery. And a lot of denominations did that. Why do we have Southern and Northern? Well, a lot of it came about to that idea of emancipation. That was the hallmark between the Anabaptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Baptists, all of them. And it is really sad because you can still go to historical records today and read some wills of long-dead white guys that bequeath people to their heirs. You would see, my land, my four cows, and my Negro slave. And hopefully, you and I cannot imagine how anyone could see another human being as property today. 
Many of the founders of our nation claim to be Christians. And I'm not saying they weren't. I'm not saying they're not. I'm not saying they didn't have issues. And I'm not saying they did in some other areas. But I will tell you this. You can claim something and still not be that thing. We talked about this last week with sheep and goats and heaven and hell. I can tell you I'm a supermodel, but I'm not a supermodel. I am built like a junior high girl, but I am not a supermodel. (laughs) The framers of our Constitution, many claim Christianity. They believe that they were made by God. That's a good thing. They believe that they were endowed by their creator with certain rights, which is also a good thing. But when it comes to representation, eventually whites are giving full representation and blacks only got three-fifths. That is not good. Non-whites were viewed as 60% human. How do people who claim to be Christians come to believe that other human beings only have 60% of the image of God? Well, you know what it was? They didn't see them as actually being truly human. They saw them as less than, and it's baffling. The fact that many of these framers claim to be Christians is all the more troubling. Now, one of the ironies of the Civil War and all these battles about slavery and and all that is that the pro-side of slavery and the anti-side of slavery both use the Bible as the justification for their position. It is so striking, this conflict, that Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address said this, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. Sometimes people say, well, this is the problem. You can read the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. Well, you can if you're not reading it in context. And this is why we want to be able to teach you how to read the Bible in context. We must go back to why it was written and why the words were written were actually in the text. And so it's very complex. But I will tell you, the Bible really does give a great framework for social systems and the broader issues of justice. New Testament scholar William Webb says, this is why it's important to understand the nature of the Bible and when and where it was written to. This is what he writes. The Bible is not an abstract heavenly blueprint for universal utopia. And if you've ever read the Bible, you know that because it keeps showing you human sin and how we keep messing up. He goes on, the Bible was written by real people in a real cultural context who were facing real problems and quite often commanded the audience to make limited but doable changes that point in the direction of God's ultimate love and justice for human flourishing. So let's go to this. When the Bible was written, all the cultures the biblical writers interacted with, every single one involved slavery. There was not one that did not in the world. Canaanite, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Assyrian, Babylonian, uh, Greece, eventually when Rome comes along, all these economic systems all had slavery as the center of those. There was not one that existed that did not have slavery in it. And it really wasn't feasible or possible to really just jettison that. And it turns out, though, if you look closely at the biblical text, the biblical commands in the Old Testament consistently undermine the power of slave owners in the ancient world, meaning it undermined the system of slavery. So let me give you some examples. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there is no provision for slaves to be released. Yet, in the Bible, the Israelites were told that you release your slaves after seven years. Everyone. In the ancient Near East, there are no provisions given if a slave ever did get their freedom. But in the Bible, the Israelites were told to give generously to their slaves when they freed them. In the ancient Near East and later Greece and Rome, slave owners could punish slaves for any reason at any time in whatever way they wanted to. But in Exodus, it puts restrictions on how a slave could or could not be punished and actually held masters accountable. 
In the ancient world, slaves would be, be given almost no time off because they're seen as machinery. They're organic machinery just to work for whatever you want them to do. But in Israel, they were given time off on the feast days. They were given a day off every single week on the Sabbath because God said everybody doesn't work this day. And that is unprecedented. In the ancient world, runaway slaves had a bounty on their head. Even nations who were warring with one another all had these treaties that if a runaway slave was captured, you would return that runaway slave. The Code of Hammurabi, who people today look back and go, oh, this is a great piece of legislation. Oh, it brought so many laws in so many places. Well, the Code of Hammurabi imposed the death sentence on anybody who helped a runaway slave. Anybody. But in Deuteronomy 23, Israel was to provide safe places and sanctuary for runaway slaves. Webb calls so many of these seeming places in the scripture that talk about slaves and masters as what he calls seed bed texts. They are laying the seeds that were contrary to the spirit and the system of slavery. They carry in them the kind of seeds for liberation and for freedom. And only the scriptures did this. Only the Bible does this. That taught that every single human being is made in the image and the likeness of God. Every human being has worth in God's eyes because of that. Every human being is the object of God's love. And ultimately in Christ, that every human being is the object of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And what this eventually leads to is in 99.9% .9 of places where slavery eventually becomes eradicated throughout the world, it starts with Christians stepping into that because they followed what the Bible actually said. All right, point number two, or direction number two. God didn't create or condone slavery. He didn't create or condone it. He gave regulations to an existing system and condition that people created, that people Created. The Old and New Testament clearly state slavery is wrong. Owning a person as property is wrong. Exodus 21.16, this is a great one. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That should make your ears perk up right there and go, oh, well, what's that? Because there's something different about the slavery that was committed in America versus what took place maybe in the ancient world. We should see the difference. So if you read your Bible today, many times places where it uses the word slave, it will now use the word bond servant or servant because it, that's kind of the idea in that ancient world of what people were like. It wasn't a slave trade where you went in and you stole people from their beds and took them off to another country and just treated them simply as property. That's how it was practiced in our nation, the, the slave trade. That's Exodus 21. In 1 Timothy 1.10, it says, Slave traders are some of the most wicked among sinners, and it calls it contrary to sound doctrine. The slave trade is a heinous evil. Again, that's a slavery that was practiced in America. It was also large part racial. Whites owned blacks, except for a small section of Irish people up in the New England area, but most of it was whites owning blacks, where even your children would be property. And today we are left in our nation and the church with this whole thing that's ugly because people refuse to follow the scriptures as they had been laid out. And the Bible is right at the center of that debate. Is slavery justifiable? Now, in some ways in the ancient world, slavery is like and then unlike how it was in America. So it was like how it was in America and that slaves were property. They actually, they could be beaten or mutilated or branded or mistreated or killed. They didn't have rights. And so if you had a master, you hoped your master was a good master, but it's unlike it was practiced in America is that it was not primarily a racial issue. All 
uh, all different nationalities had slaves. All people had nationalities, many times of the same nationality that they were. Many had slaves, again, of that same nationality. Slavery, slavery for us was a black and white issue, not in Paul's day. Not in like the Roman days or old-time biblical days. Slaves in Paul's day even owned slaves. Slaves in Paul's day could save money. They could own homes. And again, it was just ingrained in that culture. So when you look at the Roman Empire, you have to understand one-third of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. One-third. And and so that would then include people inside the church. And the church is trying to tear down those distinctions. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the church, imagine 300 people, like, okay, element, say 300 people, right? One third of us would be slaves. That'd be a third of the band, a third of the elders, a third of the deacons, a third of the gospel community leaders, a third of the greeters, a third of the child care workers. And so the early church had a little bit of conflict. Can you imagine? Yes, yes, outside the church, one person may be the master and the other the slave, and you come into the church, and that slave could be your pastor. Can you imagine that? In the church, there was no slave or free. It solely rested upon your qualification according to Scripture. You might be a slave outside, but you could still be a pastor to the master. That should be like a rhyme, like a song right there. So who had ultimate authority? And this is, again, why none of you would want me to work for you. Because imagine you had to discipline me or yell at me for something on a job site. Then you come in on Sunday morning and have a really great illustration using you as the example. (laughs) It'd be awkward. Now, before I get to my third point in the direction I want to go, I want to look at one of the hardest of these verses that people talk about. Exodus 21, verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, it's difficult for us to receive or even acknowledge this way of thinking, but slavery in the ancient world was a way to maybe get out of debt or escape poverty. You can't file bankruptcy. And if you sold yourself or your family into servitude, it meant that your basic needs would be covered in that time. And yes, there is a owner-servant relationship, but it wasn't really the exact same as was practiced in America that began with kidnapping. Our framework of how we view some things in the scripture has to shift a bit. We can't just take what people say and go, oh, that has to be it. It's no one's, when you sold somebody like your daughter, it sounds so foreign to us today. And, and first off, I'm not condoning it. I'm not making excuses for it. I simply want to explain it. And second thing is what is happening is the Bible is setting limits on what people were already doing. It's setting limits on what they were doing. So in this situation in Exodus, the father is most likely selling his daughter because he doesn't want her to starve or be abandoned. In that day, you know, your options are very limited in how you kept you and your family safeguarded. And so we read this about a father selling his daughter. It's not saying it's a good thing. It's not saying you have to do it. It's not condoning it. It is recognizing that if a father had to do this for all kinds of reasons beyond his control, which were all too common in the day, he should do it in a way that protects and preserves her dignity. If you don't just read a Bible verse, but you read it in context, these verses are fleshing out ways to protect people who find themselves in that bond-servant relationship in Israel. If a father sold his daughter, it could not be for prostitution. It could not be for pleasure. She was not to be disposed of like trash if the owner no longer desired her. She can't be sent out as the male slaves were. He must treat her like family. And if at some point there is not a marriage that's able to take place in this family where she was, she must eventually be set free without being violated. Again, I know it sounds weird to us today because we aren't in that culture. 
But this was so normal in the ancient world. What the Bible is doing is moving towards places for the daughter that protects her in that existing system. It's not an endorsement of the system. It's not. In this culture, people were selling themselves to get out of poverty all of the time. They arranged marriages, and this was not bizarre or weird to them. What was bizarre is how much care the Bible says you're supposed to take for one another because we're all made in the image of God. And again, don't forget, God actually commanded the death penalty for those who went and kidnapped other people as slaves. And so when slavery is addressed in the Bible, it speaks into a system that helped the poor and the marginalized and the powerless survive so they could work off their debt. And in context, we must deprogram how today people talk about things and how we hear things and see it more in light of the culture and the world in which it was written into. You fast forward to the Roman Empire that the New Testament was written into. Slavery many times in the Roman Empire did not always have to be a lifetime of servitude. Many slaves could get their freedom sometime about in their 30s. You could even save money as a slave because you could make money and you could buy yourself out of slavery. Occasionally, the government in Rome would release people from slavery. Uh, there are records where they released hundreds and thousands of, of different slaves. Not saying the Roman government was a great government. It wasn't. And again, slavery in the U.S. was from slave trading. But from the Bible's historical narrative, even when people were taken in war there, they were never to be treated harshly. How about this? Uh, infant sides called exposure. This is practiced in Rome. If you didn't want a child after you gave birth to it, you would set it outside to die. It was just normal, small babies. And so some people would come along and they would take these babies and they would raise them as household slaves. Christians would come along and they'd do the same thing. They would grab these babies, but they didn't turn them into slaves. They would adopt them into their families. And this is actually where orphanages began because Christians went out and took care of abandoned babies. Now, some slavery was the result of debt you couldn't pay. Again, you didn't get to file bankruptcy, so you'd have to sign a contract. I will work for this time as your bondservant in order to pay off this debt. Lots of slaves were those who didn't make it to Financial Peace University or get a government bailout. They couldn't get another credit card or take a second loan on their home to pay off these debts. Some slaves were treated poorly and others were treated really well. In Israel, what God is doing is bringing about a better treatment for slaves than they received anywhere else in the ancient world. Leviticus 25, verse 43, You are not to rule over them harshly, but you shall fear your God. Who is your focus upon? God himself. That's what God is telling these people. The guidance that God is giving is a way to improve what was already existing in that culture. There is punishment for killing slaves. There is freedom for injured slaves. And all these directives deviated significantly from the normal treatment of slaves in the ancient world because God was and God is planting the seeds that gradually move people away from slavery and toward a more dignified relationship between human beings on the earth. How are you feeling? Okay, all right. Point number three. Okay, and this is kind of the big one, or direction number three. Why does the Bible never rightly say slavery should not exist? And that really becomes the crux of the question that people have today in the controversy. And as I said, silence doesn't really argue for anything. The Bible never says it's great. Silence in the Bible doesn't mean that thinks something's good. It's like the Bible never talks about cats. Are they good? a joke. My wife's got two. I care about them, right? Whatever. In, in the New Testament, God is moving his people away from slavery. 
as the church, you know, makes it a point to equalize the worth of all people. Galatians 3.28, again, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The church brought equality in gender and social status and ascribed status. The Apostle Paul will even write a letter. It's in your Bible. It's called Philemon. And you can read this letter. And Paul Philemon is a slave owner. There's a guy named Onesimus who's a runaway Greek slave, and Paul sends him back to his master with this letter. Onesimus had visited Paul in Rome when Paul was in jail. He hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. Onesimus believes, and he must have realized that his sin before God was so much worse than the life that he had fled. And so Paul sends this slave, Onesimus, back with a letter to his owner, Philemon, where Paul asks that Onesimus would be legally freed. And you know what? It must have happened. Because for the last few years of Paul's life, <clears throat> Onesimus was a helper to him wherever he went. And Paul, in the letter, even offers to pay for any damages that Onesimus' running away might have actually caused Philemon. So let me remind you again that this world, 33% of people are slaves. And how the scriptures speak about slavery is so forward-thinking, and it's so important. It's not regressive at all. God is moving his people away from the effects of the fall and reaffirming his truth in the original creation. Do you know that today, according to International Justice Mission, that there are more people in slavery today than there ever have been in the history of the world? Population-wise. And in many places, slavery is illegal. And yet, it usually takes place with people who are poor and marginalized. And what God is doing is sending his people into the world to be those who bring about a difference and a change. God in the Bible lays a, a groundwork for how people are to view one another. He moves beyond us being you know, blinded simply by our sin and seen as he created things to be. We, we have to move past this idea of selfishness and see other people again. And this is why we look beyond financial status. We look beyond politics. We look beyond skin color and education. See, everyone is equal. And that shift penetrated the people's hearts and minds of Jesus' followers, and it changed the world. But it starts with going back to the place where we see everyone as made in God's image, as God's image bears. It's like a process of moving one people out of seeing one thing and into another. But that only starts when the gospel lays hold of our hearts. We are told to love our neighbor. We are not told to own them. We are to love others as we, as we ourselves want to be loved, which means you don't want anybody breaking into your house in the middle of the night and kidnapping you and throwing you on a ship and taking you someplace to the other side of the world. You don't want that to happen to you. Why would you do it to somebody else? Don't do that. We're called to be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live these lives of love. Jesus lives in a day, again, 33% of people were slaves, and yet he didn't have any himself. In John chapter 13, it says he came to be a servant. That word there is the word slave. It's the bond servant. He came to be a servant of those around him to teach us how to also serve one another. He will wash his disciples' feet, which is only something that slaves would do. Galatians 3.28, again, there's no distinction of who's better in the kingdom. In front of God, we are all equal. And I think a major motivator of slavery in the ancient world and our world today is self-righteousness. I think it comes down to issues of racism, thinking we're better than somebody else. Because we now have to be careful because there is a strong sentiment in a lot of people that look in our divided culture and say, those people are not worth as much as these people over here that I agree with. 
and we are starting to move this direction again. Everyone does this. We think whatever our life is, well, that is holier than other people. Whether, whether you're rich or poor or black, white, brown or yellow or healthy or sick or have toils or blessings, we all think whatever we have gone through makes us better than somebody else, and that's sin. We are all equal. How? One, first, we are made in the image of God, and second, we are all wicked. We have all run from God. We are all sinners, and we all need Jesus. And Christianity is supposed to be this leveling of the playing field where we realize we are better than no one else. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That's every single one of us. The scriptures argue against all the pillars that slavery is built upon. Slave trade, self-righteousness, abuses, injustices. 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you're free, don't go into slavery, into anything, whether it's a person or money or a job or things. Don't do it. If we want to follow Jesus faithfully and serve him as our only true master, we can't be in slavery to anything else. We can't truly worship him. Philemon 16 says, in the church, masters and slaves are brothers, and they should love each other as such, like family. We look back two to 4,000 years, and this is where all the arguments take place, because all the things look so odd to us, but that's largely because we live in a society where the teachings of the Bible eventually undermine slavery and promoted human equality. Let me give you an example of this, and I'll, I'll kind of end with this. Um, let me show you how anti-slavery the, the Bible is. Uh, right after COVID hit, they closed this down, but you can actually go visit now if you want to. It's called the Museum of the Bible. And in the Museum of the Bible, they have an exhibit called the Slave Bible. There are only three known copies of the Slave Bible that have existed. It was published in 1808, and its purpose was to convert African slaves into Christians to make them, quote-unquote, good slaves. When they created the slave Bible, they removed all the parts of the Bible that might prompt slaves to desire freedom. So the first thing they did was got rid of the entire book of Exodus. Can you imagine why? Because the Israelites were slaves, and God comes and sets them free. He hears their cry. All these captives being set free from their oppressors. So the publisher said, we can't let them read that, or they'll think God might do that for them. So they take it out of the slave Bible. They took out the entire book of Revelation. Can you imagine right? Jesus comes back, right? All injustice is done. God triumphs. He brings humanity to himself in Christ. They took out every mention of liberty and freedom. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Gone. Gone. Okay? In the Protestant Bible that you have, you will have 1,189 chapters in that Protestant Bible. You know how many were in the slave Bible? 232. That's it. 232. The slave Bible. To make it slave for slaves, they had to take out 80% of it. Does that help you to see how anti-slavery the Bible is? The, the Bible is about God liberating, us, liberating all of us from slavery. It changes society. But that change doesn't come in ourselves. We're like, we're going to make this stop. It comes when God gets a hold of our hearts and God changes us. And then we step out into the world as his hands and feet and begin to make a difference. When we see God as the creator and the redeemer of all people, slavery has to disappear. I mean, how could it not? How could it not? The gospel is what we proclaim because the gospel brings freedom. And if we are a people who truly believe that Christ brings freedom, we must live it. We must preach it. We must go out into the world with it because the Bible is tremendously subversive to slavery, and that's the truth. 
This is why the book of Exodus is so important for us as a people because it leads directly to what salvation is. God takes us as captives, takes us from captivity and leads us to himself. We've been captive to our sin and all these things that kept us so self-focused. And he sets us free. And this is how Jesus takes us from being slaves to sin to set us free. And sometimes I think that we are a people who do not think that we are in slavery to sin anymore. And I think it is that, I, I don't know how we could think that. When we, we can look at people around the world who are made in the image of God, and when we think, well, they don't agree with me, we start to think of them as less than. Like we think if something happened to this whole group of people on that side of the aisle, if they all just disappeared, I wouldn't care. You should care. You should care because they're people made in the image of God. And this is the problem about where this started. We must be a people who trust God enough to he has everything in his hands. And so we stand against slavery wherever it is in the world, especially in our own hearts, because that's where it has to start. The end of slavery must start here in our hearts, trusting Christ because he is the one who in the gospel saves and rescues us. Every week at Element, we bring you to communion. Because communion is the place where we remember that we had to be rescued, that we had to be freed, because we were all and are all in bondage without Christ. And so when we come to communion, it's a place of humbleness, where we set aside all these things we hold in our heads that we think make us better than everybody else. And we realize that we are a people who are broken, who are fallen, who have run away from God. And when we take communion, we break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, we realize this is the only way that we will ever have a right standing before God. Or really, the only right way that we will ever come to a place to have relationships with one another again. Because our God rescues us from the midst of our slavery. And I think we then need to come to the next spot where we realize that how we see others who disagree with us who don't understand the way, things the way that we do, how we start to see them as less than, that's, that's a sin. And we have to stop it because what we want people to do is come to trust in Jesus Christ. Winning people to your argument to see things the way that you do is not going to in the end change the world because it's not going to change hearts. Jesus is the one who changes hearts. So we trust him. And if you need prayer today, maybe you have a hard heart. Maybe you're in a place where you look at everybody else around you who doesn't agree with you and think, well, you know, if they disappeared, meh, I wouldn't care. And, and that's, that's a hard heart. And this is what I think starts and leads to places of slavery for one another because we see others as less than. And I think God wants to give us a tender heart like his to those in the world around us because God's heart has been so tender towards us to come and save us. And if you need prayer, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She will connect you with some people to be able to pray through that. Um, if you want to give, there's offering boxes next to all the doors. At Element, we don't pass a plate. It's just always a response to what God has done. And so that's why we don't pass a plate. We want us to respond to what he's doing. And so you can give in that way. I also encourage you to grab those sermon notes, just those few questions on the back, and start to walk through those with people around you. And maybe talk about are there ways that you and I can go out and make a difference in the world even today, where we would stop seeing one another as less than, but see everybody as made in the image of God, and that the gospel speaks truth where we are. Because quite honestly, we all need it. And the farther we walk from the gospel, the farther we will step into places of seeing others as less than.
And God always wants us to bring us back and return. And that's why our focus is on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is God's rescue that saves us and draws us to himself. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be those who actually do truly trust you. Father, so often we get our eyes upon ourselves. And though in Santa Maria, California in 2022, there isn't slavery like it was in those Bible days. And yet, when our hearts are the center, when our lives are the center, that's the beginnings of where it starts. And so I ask that you would reveal that to us. I ask that you would convict our hearts that we would see where we have become so self-focused that we've lost sight of what the gospel actually is and what the gospel brings. I ask that we'd be those who begin to walk in the new life that your spirit gives us, that there'd be peace and grace and joy and hope because we understand our own rescue and salvation from all the ways that we have been in bondage to sin. All the ways that we have been so self-focused that we haven't trusted you. And then as we understand your great salvation, we would step out into this world, truly being your priests, your hands and feet, your ambassadors, speaking of freedom and grace and life that there is freedom for every captive, that our chains have been broken, and that there is grace and restoration found in you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So just take the next few moments right now and ask yourself th this question. And, I, and it's a hard question question I think for people in our culture to begin to ask because we think oh that's not us that, that's everybody else who has those problems judging everybody else next week we're actually going to talk about judging <laughs> ask yourself this question who are the people in the world maybe even in your life but out there beyond you who if they disappeared from the planet you would be like oh thank god that's over Instead of saying, God, teach me how to reach them. Show me how to be your ambassador. Show me the way to step in and help them also to be set free from their captivity to their sin. Ask him to reveal in your own heart where maybe you are not living as his ambassador to the world. And that's not to make you walk around and hang your head down and feel guilty the rest of the day. That's actually great grace because when we acknowledge that, we don't have to walk around going, oh, I'm so terrible. We walk around going, I was saved from this. God has given me new life. I can live in joy because I've been saved. And then we can then offer that joy to others around us. Let's be a people who live in and speak of the freedom that God has given us.